0: Welcome to Roleplaying History, the podcast where we explore the history of roleplaying games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 69, Storytelling System and Palladium Fantasy Roleplaying Games. This week we're taking a deep dive into a game system that's been the core of an entire system of games from White Wolf, the storytelling system, and a dive into one of the crown jewels of Palladium books, the Palladium fantasy role playing game. Normally I've got a shout out or some cutesy saying to drop in here before we get down to business, but for once I don't have a smart ass comment to drop on you today, so let's do something we typically don't do this quickly in the podcast and just get down to business. So with that in mind, let's crank up the tour bus and check out our first subject for today, the storytelling system. The storytelling system began as the storyteller system, and that game mechanic came from the mind of Mark Reinhagen. As the story goes, Reinhagen was on the road to Gen Con in 1990 when he had an idea strike him. That idea was the design for what would eventually become Vampire the Masquerade. However, he enlisted help in putting his design together, tapping Tim Dowd, who'd been the co-designer of Shadowrun. Vampire the Masquerade fans have Dowd to thank for the D10 system the game includes, as he decided a change from Ryan Hagen's previous D6 system would be a better system to use for the new game. Over time, this system was adapted to every title in the World of Darkness line, which we covered in great extent a couple of months ago here on this show. Additionally, the 1995 release Street Fighter the storytelling game, the 1999 release Trinity, and the 2000 release Exalted also used the storyteller system rules. The Storyteller system morphed into the Storytelling system in 2004 when White Wolf switched gears and brought the Chronicles of Darkness to the game world. We covered that line a couple of months ago as well as a three episode arc covering both game lines. The Storytelling line is, in essence, the Storyteller system in a more streamlined form, with much of what we could be termed as the excess fat trimmed from the rules. We'll take a look at some of these differences in just a little bit, but before we do that, why don't we check out game mechanics and discuss how a character would be created for the storytelling rules. Looking at the mechanics of the storytelling system, we've talked about some of these a couple of different times over the course of this series, but in the interest of telling the entire story, we're going to get into the mechanics right here. As you may remember, the two most basic mechanics of the storytelling system are the D10s used to resolve roles, and the fact that the GM in this system is called the Storyteller. And that's regardless of whether it's the storyteller or storytelling system being run. Those D10s we mentioned are used in the concept of die pools. Again, we've discussed this dozens of times before, but we need to mention what a dice pool is once again. When making a roll to resolve something, the storyteller will instruct the player to add the number of dots in a particular attribute and skill, and the player rolls that many D10s, and that's the dice pool. So for example, if a character has three dots in Strength and four dots in Athletics, they'll be rolling seven dice to determine the success or failure of their task. Now, rolling dice without knowing what you need is rather pointless, so this system has what's called the target number for the task at hand. For the record, the term target number isn't unique to the storytelling system, Deadlands Classic is one other game system that utilizes the target number concept, and as noted in any of the core rulebooks for the Chronicles of Darkness, the target number should always be 6. What that means is that every D10 rolled that hits 6 or higher is a success, while any 5 and under are failures. And as we've discussed before, you don't add the dice together. Of course, it wouldn't be a role-playing game without some sort of modifier involved in the resolution process. But modifiers in the storytelling system are a bit different than modifiers in other systems. Since the attributes and skills determine the number of dice you roll, they can't exactly provide the modifiers like attributes and skills do in D&D. The modifiers, as determined by the storyteller and based on things like the difficulty of task, lighting and cover in combat situations, and other factors, actually subtract dice from the dice pool. Now they can also add dice to that pool, so it's not always necessarily a bad thing. And modifiers cannot add or subtract more than 5 dice. But taking away 5 dice could leave a player with no dice to roll. That means the particular task should be nearly impossible for the character to perform but the rules do allow the character or player to try a roll. They get a single die. It's called a chance die. However, under chance die rules, the target number is automatically a 10. This would be a good time for me to mention the idea of what most gamers call the exploding die. What that means is, if you roll a 10 on a die, you get to re-roll that die. Now, under typical rules, you would add whatever you roll on that second d10 to the 10 and that would become your number. However, under the chance die rules, you are looking to see if you roll another 10 because 10s are the only things that are going to be successes. And when you're rolling a chance die, chances are good. You need more than one success. Now, if you keep rolling 10s when that die explodes, you obviously get to keep rolling until you don't roll another 10 simple enough. Under regular rules, that means you could roll, you know, in theory as high as 100 or or more. Chances are that's not going to happen considering numbers and percentages when you think about dice. However, the more tens you can roll when you're working with the chance die, the better the chances you're going to succeed. To succeed at a task, as I mentioned, a certain number of successes are needed, and that's determined by the storyteller. Easier tasks usually take about one or two, while the number of successes needed will increase with the difficulty of the task at hand. Oh, and where you have an exploding die, you also have the chance for massive failure. Any die in the die pool that rolls a one is considered a dramatic failure, and for each one roll, you take away one die that rolled a success. And it needs to be noted. If you have no successes and any ones, that is a chance for massive failure. A lot of math you got to do, a lot of things you got to think about, but I can assure you from personal experience, once you learn the system, it's really easy to use. So we've talked about dice and rolling them. And by the way, if you're playing a game in the storytelling system, make sure you've got lots of D10s in your dice bag and you can leave all the other dice at home because you just won't need them. Anyway, let's talk about time. Turns in this system are three seconds. A number of turns, as determined by the storyteller, make up a scene, and a number of scenes make up a chapter. Chapters link up together to create the story or chronicle. Now, we've seen turns used in other games, though they're typically longer in other games, like six seconds in D&D. A scene can be defined as an encounter. Whether it's combat or role play. the length of time that particular encounter takes is a scene, much like it would be in a theatrical performance by the way, which is what some of these rules are based on. Think of a chapter as a game session. So if you've got 24 game sessions overall, you'd have 24 chapters. Story and chronicle, those should be self explanatory, so I'm going to just leave it there. Now in the storytelling system, there are three kinds of basic actions. The instant action is one that takes up very little time, if any, and includes things like shouting a short message to an ally or disengaging the safety off a gun. The extended action takes longer, sometimes multiple turns. This would be things like changing a car tire or cutting down a tree. The contested action is, as you might have figured out, an action whose success or failure involves dealing with what the opposition does. Shooting at a running target during combat would be an example of that. I just mentioned combat, and with combat comes damage, so let's break that down while we're here. For every success the player rolls on the attack roll versus the opponent, one health point of damage is taken by the target. But there are three types of damage in a storytelling game, at least in the white wolf games that use the system that I've played. There's bashing, there's lethal, and there's aggravated. Bashing and lethal should be obvious, so we're just going to leave those be. Aggravated damage is the type of damage brought on from supernatural sources, Damage taken by supernatural sources via their weakness, like sunlight or silver, are also considered to be aggravated damage. The rate at which a character recovers from damage is quicker with bashing, but about as slow as it can get with aggravated damages. Now with that, let's talk about health. In this system, the character sheet has a number of health boxes for the character, as determined during character creation, which we'll get to in a minute. Health boxes are crossed out, depending on what kind of damage is done. If it's bashing damage, the box gets a diagonal slash. If it's lethal or aggravated, that box gets an X. When the last box is used for bashing damage, the character is in danger of passing out. However, when that last box is used for lethal or aggravated damage, the character is at risk of death unless they get immediate medical attention. One other note, if all of the boxes are filled with either bashing or lethal damage, any additional damage automatically moves up to the next category of damage. Last up in this section comes the rewards, because as players, we're always curious about how we'll be rewarded for our actions, right? Okay, maybe that's just me, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one out there that feels like that. After a session, the storyteller can choose to award experience points based on role-playing performance, especially as it pertains to playing flaws and or accomplishing short and long-term goals. Typically, the experience is a few points at a time, but these points are used to improve attributes, talents, and skills. So that's the mechanics of the system. How about we look at character creation? When building a character in the storytelling system, character points are used. In the Storyteller system, typically a player is given three pools of points to spread out amongst the three categories of attributes, and these categories are not equal. The first pool of points is higher than the second, which is higher than the third. Points are used to put dots into attributes and skills, and the more dots in one of these, the better the character is in that particular stat, obviously. Two things to remember about this, it's not necessarily a point for point deal, so players have to make a decision about what attributes and skills are the most important to them as they spend their points. The second thing to remember, the maximum level in most games in this system is 5 dots, so having twos across the board isn't necessarily a bad thing. Since we're spending these points, let's look at the attributes they can be spent in. Attributes are split into three categories, mental, physical, and social. Mental attributes are intelligence, wits, and resolve. Physical are strength, dexterity, and stamina. Social are presence, manipulation, and composure. So in figuring out which of the three categories gets the larger pool of points to spend, the player needs to think about what they want their character to be and how they feel the best way to play them will be, since there's going to be one category that doesn't get a whole lot of points to use when you're building the character. From here, the player has another pool of points to use, which is determined by the levels of a couple of their attributes. Those points are divvied up amongst the various abilities and skills that are available, and there are way too many of those to break them all down here. And I use the words abilities and skills because the storytelling system uses skills and the storyteller system uses abilities. Confused yet? Hang on. Regardless of what you call them, they're essentially the same as skills in D&D or in just about any other game system. They do share the same five dot system as attributes. Advantages are next up in the creative process. Advantages include the character's defense score, health, initiative, morality, size, speed, and willpower. Now, it should be noted that these are either predetermined or they come from a single attribute or a combination of attributes. If you've been following Bad GM's campaign build-along, the Deadlands Classic System has a variation on this, and we've covered it as a part of the character creation process for that show, so check it out in the archives of Bad GM's campaign build-along if you're interested in learning a little more. The storytelling system has another system in place to help flesh out characters, virtues, and vices. Now, before we get into those, I do want to note that the storyteller system calls them nature and demeanor, so that's how you might know these if you've played the game in the past. In the storytelling system, each character has one virtue and one vice. As you might have figured, the virtue is a defining quality of the character's personality, and it's an ideal that they're struggling to aspire to. The vice naturally, is a weakness of that character's personality. That can be some sort of flaw or guilty pleasure that they indulge in regardless of what the consequences might be. Virtues and vices have two major purposes. The first is that by playing their virtue or vice to the storyteller's satisfaction, the character can earn experience points. Yay. The second is that by playing the virtue or vice to the storyteller's satisfaction, they can regain willpower for the character. Again, yay and very important. Of course, the books in the World of Darkness and the Chronicles of Darkness involve the supernatural, and the creation process includes supernatural templates to be dropped in during the creation process. The most common example would be the template for vampires that puts disciplines and blood points, among other things, onto the character. Now, to keep things in balance, a character can only have one of these supernatural templates. Last up on our character creation segment are backgrounds and merits. Merits are special abilities or strengths that a character can possess. They're always positive and act like feats do in D&D, from third edition on anyway, which means they allow the character to do things that they normally wouldn't be able to do. Merits are organized like attributes are into the categories of mental, physical, and social. In the storytelling system, players get seven dots to use to purchase their merits. Now, there are some merits that can only be purchased if you've got the right amount of dots in a listed attribute to buy. To make it even more interesting, each merit has a certain number of dots it costs, which means it's not a matter of buying it with a single dot and then increasing it as the player feels like. Common sense, by the way, is an example of this. It costs four dots to buy. Woe be the character without common sense, but anyway. In the storyteller system, merits are optional and have to be purchased with points left over during the build process. Alright, so with the basic mechanics out of the way, I should note that there are multiple variants of the system as a whole. Obviously, I've been covering the Storyteller and Storytelling systems, and we've discussed a few of the differences between them. There's also Mind's Eye Theater, which is a variant of the system developed for LARPing. This version carved most of the tabletop elements of the game out, allowing for it to be played in the LARP style. In 2013, White Wolf released another variant which they called the God Machine Chronicle. The idea was to ease some of the restrictions on character creation and advancement from the original rules and brought with it an extra list of term changes. Obviously the idea was make the characters more powerful. God Machine. There you have it. Onyx Path Publishing released a second edition of these rules in 2014. Now Onyx Path also created the Story Path system. It's identical in many ways to the storytelling system. The major adjustment is that the system is designed to handle a wide range of character power levels during the story. What it means is that the need to have all of the characters in the game be of the same or a similar power level is no longer necessary. Now obviously these aren't all of the differences between the variants and the originals, but for the purposes of our show, you get the basic ideas. And you can't argue with the results. The World of Darkness and Chronicles of Darkness have survived all of these years and continue to prove themselves extremely popular, as we discussed when we covered them a couple of months back. So with our review of the storytelling system covered, let's move on to our second subject this week, the Palladium Fantasy Role Playing Game. The Palladium Fantasy Role Playing Game was originally published by Palladium Books in July of 1983. As with most Palladium product, Kevin Bieta is listed as one of the creators of the product, along with a long list of co-creators, including Matthew Belent, Thomas Bartold, Bill Coffin, Steve Edwards, Mark Hall, Patrick Nowak, and Eric Woodchick. In June of 1984, Palladium released a revision of these first edition rules, but it is only considered to be a revision rather than an entirely new edition. In April of 1996, however, Palladium pulled the trigger on a new release, bringing the second edition of the game to market. That version, by the way, is still available for sale in game shops and online stores to this day. But I do have to admit, My friendly local neighborhood game shop did not have any copies on hand, but they offered to order one for me because they did have the ability to do that. It's also available online from the Palladium website, among other websites out there. One note I do want to put out there is that the two editions of this game are basically compatible with each other, though the rule set for the second edition is a bit different than the first. Okay, so... (laughs) That's the history portion of our breakdown for Palladium Fantasy. It's not as long as what we usually do, but gotta be honest, the history of this game isn't as complicated or as sexy as a lot of the other subjects we cover in this program. All it really means in this case is we've got plenty of time to break down the game itself. So, let's take advantage of that time and get into the setting. Let's start with the variety of playable races in the system. Like most other fantasy role-playing games, Palladium Fantasy has humans, elves, dwarves, gnomes, and orcs as standard character races. Palladium Fantasy expands their core playable races by adding troglodytes, kobolds, goblins, ogres, trolls, changelings, and wolfins. These are pretty much the same as we've seen in dozens of other systems over the years, so I'm really not going to expand on them here, but I do want to note is that Wolfen are basically humanoid wolves who have their own empire in the palladium fantasy world. Many players have noted over the years that the rules don't consider a lot of interbreeding among the various races of the game, so the chances of finding a half anything are pretty darn slim. Alright, we've covered races, let's look at classes. Character classes in Palladium Fantasy are numerous and varied. Overall, they're split up into five categories. Men at Arms, Men of Magic, Clergy, Optional Occupational Character Classes, and Psychic Character Classes. By the way, those last two have the abbreviations OCCs and PCCs, and the deal with abbreviations will come into play a little bit later on. OCCs are basically NPC types in the game, but the other four should be pretty obvious. Obviously, the character class will determine what kinds of skills the character can get, as well as access to abilities such as spellcasting or psionics. And it is possible for a character to leave one class for another, and there are rules within the system that specifically play upon that later on. Now, if you haven't already figured it out from what we've covered, Palladium Fantasy was created as an alternative to Dungeons and Dragons. And while we'll get into some complaints and observations about the mechanics of the game system in a little bit, one thing hardly anybody complains about is the world of Palladium Fantasy. And yes, I am intentionally pushing the mechanics of this game as far back into this section as I can for, let's just call them, reasons. The history of the Palladium world is divided into several ages, which correspond to certain events and the differing levels of ambient magical energy. There's a lot of history detailed throughout the various books released for both editions of the system, but they're all basically in agreement. If we're doing a history of this world, we have to start with the old ones. So we begin with the Age of Chaos. This age had an abundance of magical energy. However, in the historical texts, there's not a whole lot of information left. This means that, for game purposes, we don't know for certain if the Old Ones were progenitors of the universe, or if they were just one of a number of factors that were involved. However, what's assumed by all is that the Old Ones in Palladium's world are quite similar to the Great Old Ones from H.P. Lovecraft. A true description of the Old Ones isn't really known, but descriptions tend to lean towards swarming tentacles, unblinking eyes, and gaping moths. Oh my. The Old Ones are depicted as the epitome of dark emotions and bad intentions, so of course there were those who wanted to see their rule brought to an end. According to legend, dragons convinced the envoys of envy and betrayal to ensnare the greatest of the Old Ones, Z, within a magical construct. This transformed Z to Thoth from the Pantheon of Life and thus began the revolt. Angels, avatars of the light, and dragons worked together to bring down and subdue the Old Ones and brought the Age of Chaos to an end. The Age of Light was next, and this is the first age in which humans appear. This is also the era in which religious wars began as the various gods competed with each other for worshippers. While this age was a long one, the histories don't say for certain how long it was. Next up was the Time of a Thousand Magics. It's noted that magic wasn't necessarily stronger than in the previous age, but magic reached its point of its greatest diversity. This meant that elves and dwarves got into the magic game, with dwarves being noted for developing rune magic. This rise in power for elves and dwarves brought on the elf-dwarf war, which is the next age in the game. If you understand anything about elves and dwarves, you know that in most fantasy works, they can be quite competitive. Well, that competition led to the two races trying to outdo themselves in magic, especially once the war began, which, by the way, began because the elves accused the dwarves of scheming against them. Naturally. Anyway, the escalation of the conflict, especially from a magical perspective, led to a lot of destruction, including the near destruction of both races. The war ended with the destruction of the Golden City of Balgor and the creation of the Balgor Wastelands. Needless to say, in the aftermath of the war, the dwarves swore off nearly all magics and decided to purge the world of that evilness, save a few types they believed worthy of remaining around. This period was known as the Millennium of Purification. Needless to say, other practitioners of magic took this purification thing seriously because, well, when a dwarf decides to destroy something, you think you're going to stop them? One? Yeah, maybe. A couple thousand? Yeah, get back to me. Let me know how that worked out. So magic practitioners tended to either go underground or forsake their magics, which led to a reduction of magic. Note I said reduction, not elimination. Since that time, which is about 10,000 years before the start of the game, humans became the dominant race on the planet, and Wolfen have spent the past 50 years getting themselves better organized and getting their society to a point where they can compete with humans. The game itself takes place on a single continent with a few islands nearby. That continent has varied climates, as you would expect. It's also been noted that by doing the basic math, this continent isn't the only one on the world, since it can be easily assumed the planet is about the size of Mars. However, it was noted early on in the game's history that there's some sort of impenetrable black wall keeping folks away from the rest of the world. Now I could get into the various empires of the world, but I'd rather get into a few other things, so instead I'll note that the humans are allied with both dwarves and elves, but those two races still don't like to work with each other. Wolfen are accepting of pretty much everybody, but they're really not that fond of humans. Orcs, ogres, and other monsters of that type have taken over an old elven territory, and there's even a territory that's controlled by giants. now. By this point it should be obvious that the palladium world is a very magical world. This is shown by the variety of different magics that are practiced. Wizardry, diabolism, summoning, alchemy, elementism, witchcraft, priestly magic, druidism, and psychic powers are the various forms of magics practiced in the world. Now in most other systems, several of those magics would be combined into one class of practitioner, but here they're separated. It's also noted that all of these operate on Palladium's standard system of magic, which is powered by Potential Psychic Energy, or PPE, with psychic powers powered by Inner Strength Points, or ISP. The mechanics of both, by the way, are like magic points, just in case you were curious. And since I just dropped more abbreviations, let's get into what I've been putting off and look at the mechanics of the game themselves. Or at least what I've been able to dig up on them. See, that's, that's going to require a behind the scenes deal here real quick. You gotta have to understand that more often or not, I don't own the books I'm covering for this show. It means I'm relying on whatever I can dig up online. Typically I can hit up a couple of sites online and get pretty much everything I need to know about the mechanics of pretty much any game system I need to know about. In this case, for whatever reason, getting information about the mechanics of the system was a genuine pain in the ass. Because all I could dig up were various discussion threads about the mechanics. Which means it's not going to be exactly accurate, because a lot of people are bitching about different things, what's accurate and what isn't is hard to figure out. But in the interest of fairness, I'm going to go with what I could find. What I do pretty much know is that the first edition of this game used the Megaversal system, which is the system used in pretty much all of the games produced by Palladium Books. It's a percentile based system, which uses percentile dice checks for skills, those are roll under checks, and combat and saving throws, those are roll over checks. And the percentile die also can be called 1D10 and a percentile die. You know what I'm talking about. They also throw out some more abbreviations. Hit points are Structural Damage Capacity, or SDC, or Mega Damage Capacity, or MDC. Shannon Apple Klein in the book Designers and Dragons had this to say about the Megaversal system. Quote, It was one part highly traditional, with its character classes, experience, points, and levels. And one part arcane with its abbreviations like OCCs, RCCs, PCC, PPE, SDC, and NDC. Online, tons of posters over the years have taken Palladium to task for their apparent love of abbreviations. I'm not going to get into all the comments here, but what I will say is they tend to not be fans of them. By the second edition, Palladium began to work in a quasi-D20 system, though again without a copy of the book, I can't say exactly whether it's quasi or exactly like the D20 system wizards would use for D&D a few years later. What I can say is there are several fan sites online that have speculated the last point more than once over the years, that wizards essentially copied Palladium books for the D20 system. I'm not getting into that argument here. So, what I will say, if you've got a copy of either set of rules, hit me up, set me straight, and we'll do another show to report what I missed. 10 books, including the core rules, were published for the first edition of the game, and 17 books have been published to this point for the second edition, the most recent being Garden of the Gods in 2020. Okay, so you know how much of a fan I am of reviews, so let's do a few here before we wrap up our tour. Jerry Epperson did a review of the rules in the May-June 1985 edition of Space Gamer. He said, quote, The Palladium role-playing game is a game that aspired to greatness but fell just a little short of the mark. With the advent of RuneQuest, The Fantasy Trip, and Lands of Adventure, Palladium is just a little out of step. GMs who are looking to add spice to their D&D games, or who don't really demand a great deal of realism from game mechanics, should by all means pick up Palladium but if you're searching for the ultimate in realism and innovative design, keep looking. End quote. Andy Butcher reviewed the second edition of the game for Arcane Magazine, giving it a 7 out of 10 rating and stating that, quote, If you haven't got any of the other Palladium games and your campaign is based firmly in the Palladium world, then there's a great deal of useful stuff here. End quote. And in that 1996 reader poll from Arcane to determine the 50 most popular role-playing games of all time, you know, that poll I like to use pretty much every show, the Palladium Fantasy RPG came in at 26. Paul Pettengale had this to say, quote, Well, the rules are almost identical to those in Palladium's Rift's role-playing system, and as such it's well-suited to existing players of that game who will have little to learn. Even newcomers should have little difficulty with the Palladium fantasy RPG though. The rules lie somewhere between AD&D and Rolemaster in complexity, and combined character classes with a simple skills system. A good alternative to the better known fantasy RPGs." As I mentioned earlier, the second edition of Palladium Fantasy is still being printed, so you should be able to either find it or have it ordered at your favorite local game shop, or you can pick it up online if that's the way you like to get your books. And with that, we come to the end of today's tour. Next week, I'm going back to the suggestions I got from our listener Devlin Donnelly, and we'll check out a game and setting that, even at a first glance, seemed very interesting to me. We're going to check out Harnmaster and the Harn setting. Okay, so I announced this last week, but you know me, I'm going to keep pushing it until the event has happened. Bad GM Productions will be appearing live at Archon 45 in Collinsville, Illinois, September 30th through October 2nd. We'll have a setup in what's being called Creators Alley, and we'll be promoting the company, the podcasts, and ourselves, if I'm going to be honest here. If you're a fan of gaming, cosplay, sci-fi, and fantasy movies, anime, or pretty much everything in between... Archon 45 is the place to be that weekend. So come on by, say hi, and let us know what you think of the stuff we put out. And uh, if you tell us you heard about it here, we're going to have a little something to give you. Gratis, free, no charge. You got it. If you want more information about Archon 45, check out their website at archonstl.org. That's A-R-C-H-O-N-S-T-L.org. Speaking of checking things out, please check out our other fine program, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. It's the show where we build an entire campaign for you to run for your group. And right now, we're building a game built on the Deadlands Classic system. So if a game in the Weird West sounds like fun, check it out. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or from our website at badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all of your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role-playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash badgmprod. On Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube Bad GM Productions. You can email us badgmproductions at gmail.com or catch us online. The website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, it's a system I admit I'd never heard of before I started doing the research on it, but now, (laughs) now I think I really need to play it. So, warning to my wife, there's probably going to be another set of crap coming in that I'm ordering. Sorry, honey. It's Harn Master and the Harn Setting. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis in your Role Playing History.